I think Stephen felt the same way. He, he felt that, that, that people would find science beautiful, and it was beautiful and deep and important to the human experience, but there weren't a lot of people uh, making it accessible. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at sciencefocus.com. And some of our long-time listeners might recognise our interview this week, which we've republished from an earlier episode. The reason we're doing this is because this episode comes out two years to the day that the great physicist Professor Stephen Hawking was interred at Westminster Abbey. And at the time of his death, we spoke to one of the people that knew him best, Leonard Mlodinov. Leonard is an American theoretical physicist who works with Stephen on the books The Grand Design and A Briefer History of Time. And he spoke with BBC Science Focus editor Daniel Bennett about writing together, his qualities and what they did when they weren't talking physics. How did you first come to meet Stephen and, and work with him? Um, well, actually, the first time I met him was at Princeton in the 70s when he gave a talk, but he could still speak. And he, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a physicist, I guess you know I'm a physicist, so I was just at a regular talk that he gave. And uh, he had a graduate student who would stand next to him and translate, because even though he could speak, it was kind of garbled. Uh, but uh, we got working together after he read my first book, um, uh, Euclid's Window, and he he liked it apparently, and was looking for someone to work with that he he liked uh, the way they wrote, and who also <laughs> was a physicist. Or so there's not many of them, I guess. But anyway, he he liked the book, and and so he he contacted me and asked if I wanted to, to work with him. So <laughs> I didn't have to think too long about that one. <laughs> And and so, what was your work with him like? Uh, how how did you work together? Well, we would do certain things apart, and then we would be together uh, for other times and sit side by side, really elbow to elbow, and uh, and go over every every word. So um, you know, he came. I'm I'm in the. I was at the time on the faculty at Caltech, and he comes to Caltech every year, or he used to for. I mean, obviously he used to, but he used to until his last few years of his life. He came, I would say, four weeks, roughly speaking, about a month, a year, every year. So he, so we would work pretty intensely for that month. And then I would go out to Cambridge, uh, I don't remember, two or three times a, a year, every quarter, let's say, for a right, like roughly a week usually. And um, we'd do the same thing there. And we would just start <clears throat> in the morning and sit there till you know, like quit about 8 p.m. and go have dinner and together. And um, so when, you know, we would, when we were apart, we would each have our assignment to write a certain section or, you know, and and then when we were together, we would uh, uh, go over each other's stuff. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the process. So what was he like to to write with as a a writing partner? Well, um, on this side, (laughs) a two-hour answer but uh, let's see there's a lot of angles to it first of all there's the you know the the experience of 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 working with him so so because of the way he he communicated at the time for most of the time when we were together there was about six words a minute it started out at six it went down to like one or two 
Mm-hmm. Then he changed his method of communication, went back up to about six and gradually went down again. Um, so I'm sure you know how he communicated. I don't have yeah. to go into that. But no. um, so, you know, it would take minutes for each word. Uh, I mean, at first I would sit there and, uh, you know, I'm getting used to it. I don't know what to do. I'm daydreaming. I'm, I don't know, you know, <laughs> while I'm waiting for his answer. And, and then I realized I'm sick, sit right next to him, really close to him. I can actually see his screen. He didn't seem to mind that. So then before he would finish the sentence, I could answer it if I knew what he was saying, or more importantly, I could start thinking about what he's saying before he said it. So, you know, in a normal, when you and I are speaking, we speak, we, we are, we don't think we, I mean, we, you know, we, we, we just give thoughts off the top of our head, more or less. Uh, there may be something beneath that in our head somewhere that it's coming from, but we answer immediately. And with him, you could get a few minutes to think, you know, as, as his, uh, what he was going to say started to take shape, you could start thinking about it. So it was a totally, you know, much deeper, um, more like profound discussions because you actually contemplate things. So that's, you know, I got used to that and it was, uh, that was very different and very good. And, uh, you know, at other times, if I, I, I could just sit there and also, get into a very Zen-like state, you know, you just got very relaxed with it. And so that was, you know, that was interesting. And um, he, even though everything was so difficult for him, it was striking how he, he did not let anything go. I mean, we would argue over, over individual words and, you know, um, for me, the argument uh, wasn't that hard to do because I'm speaking, but, you know, he, he would have to go through a, a lot of uh, work to, present his side. So, but he's never gave up. I mean, he, he was, you know, he, as he said, his, one of his best and worst qualities was stubbornness. So, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't think he could have got through life if he wasn't stubborn and look at all the barriers he had, physical barriers to, to existence, you know, and, um, yeah. and the other major quality was uh, humor. He had an amazing sense of humor. He could still smile. He had a really big smile. Um, he was very expressive with his face so you could give yes or no questions. He had expressions he gave for yes or no. I mean, he had one of them. I've quoted this in my book. I don't remember exactly what his assistant said, but you know, it was something like that steely, steely look of disdain or something. He really didn't (laughs) like what you said. I mean, he could, he could, um, it wasn't just yes or no. He could definitely, um, give you a super yes and a super no, right. <laughs> super no, super no yeah so um you, yeah you really knew when you yeah. said the wrong thing yeah or, yeah exactly um right either either sometimes because it well there was there was one face for what you said was stupid which i don't know if he did that on purpose but you could tell that he was thinking that there's another face for what you said irritated him <laughs> something that's just struck me in what you said there given you know, how much, you know, so you said he was obviously a, a kind of stubborn, uh, in, in, in a positive way, you know, he, he he stuck to his guns. So he always put a lot of time and thought into what he said. Would you only talk about the work or what other things did you oh, talk no, about? Oh, no, no, we talked about everything, you know, from uh, the Israel situation, uh, American politics, uh, British politics. You know, we, we did, we, we know we went to movies together, uh, uh, you know, just talked about whatever. So it was like, you know, cause we kind of became friends. Well, we, we did definitely became friends at some, you know, and, and um, so, uh, yeah, you would talk about anything and he, you know, I, I, 
sometimes he'd be sitting next to him and uh, waiting for some profound or some very heated argument, and it would come out as a joke. <laughs> He's waiting five minutes. You know, it's like, oh, it's a joke. <laughs> some punchline. <laughs> yeah. And then you could play 20 questions. Oh, one thing that you're, uh, you have to get the knack of, of, you know, you could answer his questions or his comments before he finished them because he was writing them, and that was a good thing. And it, it, when, you know, if, if you were if you were right, it was a good thing because it saved him having to finish, you know, writing it out. On the other hand, if you were wrong, <laughs> that, that that you know would would be annoying to him. So um, so you know, you see him typing, and I go, oh, you're saying da da da, and if he's not saying that, you know, <laughs> I remember, in the, you know, when I was first like trying that method, I, I would get like get it wrong three times in a row. He would like roll his eyes. <laughs> like shut up or <laughs> occasionally um, he would hit the wrong thing and a random sentence would come out or sometimes the computer would just generate random put random things together I, I think it was um, I don't remember anymore but I think it was maybe the you know the stuff he had deleted would be all there in some cache and it would just start reading that but you'd be talking to him and it would you know you'd say so uh, yeah so are we going to the curry place for dinner tonight or you want to eat at your house and and he'd go um and it, the answer would be, you know, the the tree frog of the uh, supernova <laughs> exploded uh, Aristotle. <laughs> and it could be pretty hilarious sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah. Do you have like what? What are some of your? And I'm this. This is a really, you know, on the spot question. And I'm, you know, I'm sure you'll go away and come up things. But what are some of your, you know, when you think about him, some of your favorite memories? Um, oh, well, one was the, uh, the, the night we finished, uh, grand design, we had been working on it for four years and, you know, he showed no, no sign uh, of wanting to finish it <laughs> <laughs> through those four years. And we kept pushing the deadline. I mean, I think we originally were supposed to do it in a year and a half and, Finally, the publisher just told us we're publishing it. You know, we're announcing it for next, whatever. I don't remember when it came out. We're announcing, I think, for next September. Uh, so we expect to have, you know, it's like, it's like an ultimatum, really. But they, they didn't say it in a bad way. They just kind of very matter of fact. They said, you know, we put it on the schedule uh, for next. Uh, so so if it's not there by May 15th at 8 p.m. or something. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, uh, it, it, it's, uh, I don't know what they said, but something like that, you know. So we finished at 8 p.m. on May 5th, whenever they said exactly the minute. And I remember we had a little fight down to the minute about some little thing, and we managed to, you know, and, and he's, yeah, I don't know. And then when it's, you know, when it's all over, he says, I'm saying, oh, my God. You know, because I, I was thinking oh, many times, we were never going to finish this book. This is just going to be my lifetime project. And of course, I was doing stuff in between, and, so was, and he was. But, you know, he had no, absolutely no you know, he, he, and if ever I brought up, Hey, you know, we got to finish this book sometime. Shouldn't we be like pushing on, you know, not like massaging this chapter for, you know, and I'm a, a major rewriter. I rewrite 47 times, but you know, he's even worse. Well, it's also because he, you know, he's so slow at it because of his, uh, you know, illness. So, you know, he would, his answer would always be, Nope. Doesn't matter when it's done, as long as it's good. You know? So, <laughs> so then a- after, um, after, uh, you know, that, hour ticked by and we literally on that minute, which, you know, I'm sure we could have gotten an extra 10 minutes after four years, but on that minute, we, we, we finished, you know, he, he kind of like steered the ship so that on that minute we would agree on the final point. And, um, 
And then he says to me, I said, wow, I can't believe we ever, we, we made it. He said, then he says, good thing we had the deadline or I would have never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, why, why didn't you tell me this two years ago? I would have had to give us a deadline. <laughs> was that because he just was enjoying it or because he just yeah, was a, a, like a rewriter? Well, I think he, he, he was enjoying it and, and he's a perfectionist, but I think both. Yeah. I was enjoying it too, but I was also going nuts because, you know, had to make a living and I had other stuff to do and, <laughs> you know, going back and, you know, just, kind of, you know, it seemed like my, um, it just seemed like this would be a permanent position, you know, but, but at some point <laughs> unpaid, I mean, you get in advance, but you know, uh, <laughs> you have, well, eventually I guess they're going to ask for the money back if you don't ever turn in a book, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, but you know, when you're, you know, Steven, so they, they, you know, I mean, that was, uh, we spent more than double what we were supposed to spend on it. And, Hey, it all turned out good, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, anyway, so that was one. Another good story was we went, uh, one of his carers, uh, asked me if I wanted to go punting down the cam, which I guess I don't have to tell you what that means, but here in the States, I always have to explain, take most of the stories explaining what that means. So, so we, um, you know, so I asked Stephen if he wanted to come thinking, you know, you know, thinking it was a long shot because, you know, well, for obvious reasons. So, and he said, sure. So the next day, uh, uh, we, we went, we did that. And, you know, that involved uh, parking the wheelchair up at the top of this long, I don't, I don't want to call it a staircase, a long trail of wooden, of, of, uh, stone steps. Right. Gosh. Yeah. And, and it's not wheelchair accessible. So we had to park it up at the top, carry him down all these steps to the, uh, you know, where, where the boats launch. And I started out carrying him because I, I could carry him myself, you know, uh, he, I forgot what he weighed, like 95 pounds or something. And so, but then they didn't like the way, you know, it's hard. I mean, I would carry him sometimes in, in, in his office, like to the couch or something, but, but to carry him down all that is a bit of a, you know, exercise and, and you know, you have to have his net head, right. You guys can't have his head flopping around. So mm-hmm. his care said, no, 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 put him down. We're going to do it. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they, so they had these two kids, you know, so, so he's like 95 pounds. They're each like 95 pounds. Here I am like 185 pounds and I'm, you know, fairly, um, muscular. At least I work out, lift weights and stuff. And, yeah. and they, they give me their purses to hold one of which was pink. <laughs> So I have these two little women carrying this guy down this thing, followed by a guy holding a pink purse. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and we get down to the you know thing, and you know, and you know how that works. And the guy, I forgot who was doing it. I don't think they supplied the purse. And I think one of us, one of the group, was doing the pole, whatever the punting, you call it. Yeah. What is that called the punting? And you know, you could like I said, oh, you try. I stood up there, and oh my god, I gotta fall off. And they said, yeah, and the boats can tip over too. And it's a flat boat, and he, you know, if it tipped over, I kept thinking, my God, if we tipped this over, he's dead. I mean, there's nothing you can do. I mean, like, even if it's a normal person, it's hard to save a person who cast yeah, up. Yeah. Totally limp. How are you going to do that? So, so, um, you know, and, and you know, he's fine. He has his head on one of their laps, and they're turning. You know, he can't when he look when his eyes go to the right, they turn his head to follow his eyes. You know, <laughs> his eyes go to the left, they turn his head, and. I don't know. There were strawberries and champagne. It was a very nice uh, time. But I mean, I'm thinking that, uh, of course, you know, he wanted to go up into space and he went on the vomit comet and he was yeah. very intrepid. So it was very interesting because to me, it was, that was a very vulnerable situation. You could have dropped him. He could have fallen off the boat or the boat tipped over or 
I don't know. It's one of the things that uh, it's been quite interesting is he, so with with all the you know he he did he had his science and that was a he's had his science a bit, bit of a simple way to put it, but you know he had his work which is kind of quite clear. What do you think it was about? Uh, and maybe you know what is it for you uh, that makes you want to write about science and, and share it with people. Well, when I was writing about physics, it's because I just thought it was so beautiful and fascinating, interesting, that everybody would love it if they just could understand what we're talking about. And so I, I just felt like uh, the drive to, always felt the drive to, to tell people about this beautiful stuff. And, you know, so they, you know, uh, yeah. And, and, and I wanted them on some more intellectual level, I wanted them to understand what is science about? How do we know these things? Not only what, what do we know, but how do we know what's our, you know, why do we think we believe this? You know, why is it good to follow these things? And why should you believe it today? Of course, in our, in our American, you know, uh, ridiculous, uh, you know, culture here um, right now, you know, you're defending science. You're going, no, you can't just say, oh, it's no, there's no global warming or, you know, to understand what, you know, or the anti-evolution people who, who you know, send up these people with ridiculous arguments that, you know, and people buy it, I, you know, you need to understand what is the, um, you know, what, what is the difference between pseudoscience and science? So that's just another, another, you know, like, uh, something that I think Stephen and I both felt strongly about that, that we wanted people to, um, you know, to know the difference between pseudoscience and science so they don't get misled. And so people don't make the wrong decisions. And, um, yeah, so I, I think, uh, and I, you know, I think Stephen felt the same way. He wanted, to, he, he felt that, that that people would would find science beautiful, and it was beautiful and deep and important to the human experience. But there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of people uh, making it accessible. And especially uh, when he started, I mean, he was a, not, you know, he's not just a pioneer in black holes. He was a a pioneer in explaining science to the public because the 1980s when he wrote that book there were not there were very few um uh, popular science books so people writing broadly about science is really um really the key and that's what Stephen did i mean he wrote about his own work or his own field i should say see so he wrote about his own field not just not about his own work so that's the difference so some a lot of people will write about their own little corner of what they did and try to make it sound earth-shattering but Stephen wrote about the whole field, right? So like a brief history of time. It wasn't a brief history of my work. Okay. You know? it, um, it included his work, but it was about, um, you know, it was, a, it was some beautiful, big uh, topic. And, you know, and so anyway, I, that was all those tangents. So you, that's probably not really relevant. But I'm just no, saying no, that there no, are many no, that is. I mean, that's, that's about 50% of what we're talking about, how his book, his passion for sh- sharing what he loved well he was so he was one of the people it was, you know him and steven weinberg and carl sagan you know they were the ones in back then who were the pioneers who started this huge like in you know deluge of popular science books that we have today and they all came from those guys you know doing it back then um and and it showed you know that people saw and Feynman eventually uh, a little bit later i think you know but not that long later with his anecdote books so they, they all showed people, that, oh, people, you know, showed the publishers, I guess, and the other potential authors that that people would be interested in this stuff. Um, and, you know, I don't think they had high hopes for it. I know I heard stories about A Brief History of Time that they, 
They didn't have, you know, huge hopes for it. I mean, they, they didn't think it was a, a they didn't, you know, totally dismiss it. Cause I think he got a decent advance for it, but they didn't have huge hopes for it either. They just thought, um, you know, this is like something to try and it'll be interesting, but they didn't expect it to be nearly what it turned out to be. Oh, who could expect that? But, um, so, you know, so I think that he helped really to pave the way, um, you know, to, to, um, you know, for, for, for the, you know, what we have today. And, and just to touch on something you said earlier that you've reminded me. So one, someone else we talked to said the, the, the part of the strength of that book was its clarity. It was just so clear. A brief history of time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's just like, well, Stephen did not feel that way. Let, let me just say that. Really? Uh, you know, really? Yeah. In fact, that's why we wrote a briefer history of time. Right. He said, yeah, he said that, yeah, and it's, you know, the beginning of A Brief History of Time was pretty clear, and it got hard to understand after that, which is why Stephen kind of himself said, uh, you know, that it's like the, I think he he said, I forgot how he put it, but um, the, you know, book that sold the, the most and was read the least, you know, the average person found it tough going about after I forgot, you know, the first hundred pages or so, it started to get hard for people. Yeah, and um, I'm one of those people. That's yeah. specifically why he asked me to write a briefer history with him. I so that's see, kind of right. funny. Um, and that's why it's called a briefer. It's not really briefer. We, you know, the, we, we had debated calling it a clearer history of time. But, <laughs> so it's about the same length, um, but it's um, we we worked on making it, you know, more understandable. And and then that, that experience was so such a good experience. Then I I proposed to him that we write the second book, the Grand Design, because that book was based on his um, his ideas that he had uh, his new new ideas in the time I think we started running around 2006. Um, they were, it was work he had done just over the last oh five or six years and it, and his work was <laughs> developing as we were writing the book, which made it hard too because at one point we had written you know like a whole passage of like five or six pages and then I'm going to see him and we're, we're supposed to be moving on and he wants to make these changes and I say to him. But Stephen, uh, we went over this last time. This is how it works. Da, da, da. He says, he says, like, I've discovered it doesn't work that way. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> I say, <laughs> I suppose that's a nice problem to have. At least uh, you know you've got it right. No, no, it wasn't a nice problem to have. No. A nice problem? No, it's not a nice. No, it's not. No, 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 no. A nice, nice would have been. Oh, we finished that. Let's move on. <laughs> And was that so? Was that always was that what was driving him really? You know, when he's taking this time, it. it I, I like the idea of him as someone, and like you said yourself, as a person who rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. You know, I think sometimes there's an image of a of a writer that just they sit down at the keyboard and just you know it it comes out first time. That's the, I think my friend Michael Shermer called that the Amadeus myth. Uh, or Mozart, you know, because they say that about Mozart too. And when you look, and I did some research on Mozart, um, uh, actually for the, for Elastic. And, and, and the truth is he, he wrote and rewrote and rewrote constantly. And he, and and he constantly looking for places, uh, uh, pianos to play this stuff on. He, he, you know, and he had to, I forget this, I forget all the details, but he had to find another for a while, he didn't have a piano. He couldn't write. He had to go find, you know, borrow some. I mean, he was, um, you know, 
I forgot the story about how the myth happened, and it's not really relevant for for this, I guess. But but um, oh, actually, I do remember now. Was some, some later writer made it up, and right. it somehow got into the you know, and, and um, but they've done great detailed studies of his letters, and you know, they found no, it wasn't like that. And, and you know, I'm not saying that there is nobody in existence who's like that, but that's the image people have, just like the stupid movies, like this movie about Stephen, which. Uh, I was very. I, I was went was invited to uh, the premiere in Hollywood, and and um, and you know even though the movie was like as Stephen said broadly accurate, I think was his comment. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, and and people thought that that was a um, you know that he was endorsing the movie, which I guess he was. But I also know Stephen, and I know when he says broadly accurate, he also means um, not necessarily accurate in the details. <laughs> you know, that that was that was a good. I, I was a perfect Stephenism. You know. <laughs> That was Leonard Mlodinov on working with Professor Stephen Hawking. If you want to hear more, just look for the episode Remembering Stephen Hawking from March 2018 and let us know what you think with a rating or a review. Otherwise, there are plenty more science and tech stories to be found in the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine, where we look at the bacteria that can eat plastic, chew through carbon and create food from thin air. Visit sciencefocus.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription offers. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.